Putting ourselves in doctrine, in truth, in teaching about God, the reason is very important. The reason is that our lives demonstrate what we believe. We live out what we believe. Our belief, our beliefs shape our behavior, if you will. Here's a way that A.W. Tozer said it. We'll put this quote up for you. He said, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Just as her most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid. For her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. She can never escape the self-disclosure of her witness concerning God. That last line is really interesting. You can't escape your self-disclosure. All of us self-disclose, communicate to those around us and to ourselves and to the world what we believe through our lives, through the behaviors that we exhibit, through the attitudes that we have, we display what we believe. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. The things that we think are true, we act on those things and we act differently in other situations. Let me give you just a very practical and real example of this. And we could go into a bunch of these different things. But here's, here's one that we all deal with. All of us at some point have some level of discomfort, some level of pain, some level of something that happens in our life or that something happens to us or something that someone does. Something that God allows. And we're faced with a tough decision of do I hang in there and do I endure this or do I bail? This happens a lot in relationships where, <laughs> where it's just tough and it's difficult and everything in you wants to run and go, I just don't like that. But, but, but what happens is you will respond one of two ways based on what you believe. If your fundamental belief is God wouldn't want me to be unhappy then you will reorient your whole life around what you think will make you happy. But if your belief is, God is allowing this so that I will endure and become more and more like Jesus, which is what the Bible teaches, then you'll hang in there and you'll persevere and you'll work to forgive and you'll communicate and you'll get this stuff out and and you'll hang in there. What you believe shapes and determines how you behave. So what we believe is incredibly important. And so what we'll do over these weeks is really just try to look at from from kind of beginning to end. So today we look at Trinity. So who is God even before the world existed all the way to what will his kingdom be in the age to come and everything in between. And that's what we'll be looking at. And all of it has practical relevance for our lives here today. Let me tell you this as well, just as an introduction to the series. We're not going to focus a ton on trying to prove everything um, or trying to go in-depth into all the different scriptures that we could go into. Um, What we've created in this study guide is a great resource for that. So we're going to go through quite a bit of scripture actually today as we try to understand the Trinity and talk about the implications of that. But throughout the series, there's going to be a lot of different things. And so I'd encourage you, get the study guide, download it from the website, and go look up those verses. Go wrestle with the other scripture uh, that's going to be presented throughout this thing. What we're going to try to do in our times here together on Sundays is talk a lot about what are the implications. Here's what we believe. Now, how does that get fleshed out, and how does that live itself out in our daily lives? Get the doctrine book, get the study guide. Those will be helpful resources. So let's get into the Trinity. That's where we start. Trinity, God is. 
The idea that God is, before God even did anything, God was, and he was eternally existing as a trinity. We'll talk more in a moment about what that means, but I was having breakfast the other day with uh, Jeffrey Wilcoxon. Jeffrey's uh, one of our elders, helps lead the guest services team. He's the mint DJ for the, um, for the 80s night. He's like, he's like the most interesting guy in the world, right? That uh, Cuervo guy's got nothing on him at all. He's been like a... Anyway, I won't... That doesn't matter. None of that matters. Um, I'm sitting with Jeffrey, and we're talking a little bit about what we're going to be studying. And he asked this question. He said, do you think most people care about the Trinity? Do you think Christians care about the Trinity? Like, does it make any difference, the Trinity? Is it really relevant to anybody? Do they care? And my answer was this. And I don't know if I'm right. I, I of course, think I am, right? Of course I'm right, right? Isn't that what you always think of your own opinions? But I said, well, I think it does, I think people do care and they don't care. In the sense that I think that Christians, people who say they love Jesus and they believe the Bible, would say, yeah, the Trinity is important in the sense that if I deny the Trinity or if I get something wrong about the Trinity, that makes me a heretic or that puts me in kind of a cult or in an errant view of God and, and I don't want like, to be in that camp. So yeah, the Trinity is important. But if you started to drill down and go, okay, what practical difference does the truth about the Trinity make in your life this week? I think most of us would go, none. And yet, as followers of Jesus, we are immersed, as we'll see, in a Trinitarian world And everything that we do can and should be shaped by who God is as the three-in-one. So we go, yeah, it's important theologically. I'm not sure it's all that important practically. And yet, here's something else to consider. Is what we would say Christianity is, is a personal relationship with God. It's a relationship. So think about the relationships in your life. Do you, with the relationships that you care about most, do you sit there and go, you know, this just isn't practical. This person's just not practical for me to really... They don't practically do anything for me. That would be a horrible way to look at a relationship, right? And so here's something that God says in Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. He says this, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So if you are a follower of Jesus, or if you are somebody that's exploring what it means to to follow Christ and be a Christian, here's what you got to know. This is fundamentally about a relationship with God. And so if you're going to think about a relationship, one of the things you care about in a relationship is who the person is. Not just what they do. So throughout this series, we'll talk a lot about the things God has done and all that he's accomplished. Today, we look at who is he? I think about the people that are in your life. I think about my wife, Molly. And people, someone wanted to know, who is Molly? Well, I mean, I I would definitely talk about the things that Molly does and the things that Molly has done. You know, I might talk about that she spends a lot of time with these two young children being their mother. Or I might talk about that 
she teaches swim lessons, or she likes to be outside, or I mean, I could talk about the stuff she does, but that's not who she is. Right, so if you wanted me to describe her, I'd have to describe her character and what is she like and how she's patient and how she's gentle and how she's the only person, at least in our home, who doesn't have to have her opinion heard all the time. The rest of us, not so much. And, that, and I would talk about that stuff and you go, well, but, but that's not practical. Well, if I want to know and love my wife, it sure is. I mean, imagine you going to a spouse or to someone you really cared about and go, I I don't really care about who you are. Just tell me what you can do for me. Right? That's, That's not a relationship. That's a mercenary kind of thing. And so what we do as we study the Trinity is we're trying to go, God, who are you? We're so thankful for all that you've done, but who are you? Who would you be even if you had never created anything? Even if you had never done anything, who are you? And the answer to that is that God is a trinity. You go, well, how can you know what God's like? Who, who gives you, what gives you the right to say what God's like? Well, here's what I'd say. Come back next week. Next week we talk about revelation and this idea that God speaks to us. God speaks through creation. God speaks through his son. God has spoken through his word. And so everything that we have to say is just based on the Bible. I, I, don't, have, I don't have any other material. I don't have any other clues or indications of what God's like. This is his word. And we'll talk about why that is so next week. But this is the authority. I, I don't care what you think about who God is. You shouldn't care what I think. You shouldn't care about what anyone else thinks. You should go, who has God revealed himself in his word to be? And it's important as we talk about this idea of the Trinity, which is inherently a complex idea that God can be eternally existing as one God in three persons, it's very important that we say Nothing more than what the Bible says. We're not adding to it. And even more where people get into the air here is that we don't say less than the Bible says. We want to say what the Bible says as it relates to this topic and every other one. Here's another thing just to know as we, as we dive in. Is God, yeah, I think all of you agree with this. This isn't going to catch you by surprise. God cannot be known exhaustively. Agree? He he can't be known exhaustively. There's no way for a finite creature to know exhaustively an infinite being, an infinite God. That's just impossible. It can't happen. And yet, God has, through his word and through creation, allowed us to know him truly. Like, we can't necessarily know everything. We can't exhaust everything. The scripture says in Deuteronomy 29 that the secret things belong to the Lord. There's a lot that we don't know, but there's a lot that we do because God has made it known to us. And so as we go to the scripture, what we want to do today is look at the Trinity, first understand what we mean when we're talking about Trinity, define the terms, and then let's talk about why this actually does matter and why it should matter for you even this week. Okay, so let's define some terms. Let's talk first about what the Trinity is. And I said we're not going to try. We're going to try to not get overly technical, but you can't you can't go into this and not at least lay some groundwork of what are we talking about with what the Bible teaches about the Trinity. Uh, it's been often said that the doctrine of the Trinity in the Scripture is not so much heard as it is overheard. 
So there's no one place in the Bible that like fully explains what the Trinity is like and fully explains how God has been from eternity past. There's no, no one place that fully explains that, but there's a lot of different places that when you put it all together, you, you begin to overhear and to see a picture of who God is. The only reason we've had to form these doctrines as well is because people have misheard some of that picture or they've begun to leave out or add in to some of what the Bible says. And so that's why we have to define this idea of Trinity. So here's a definition. If you're taking notes or you just want to think through this definition, it's this. God eternally exists as three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Each person is fully God. There is one God. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God. There is one God. That's the definition. Now let's unpack some of the scripture that helps us to see that that is in fact the case. God eternally exists. God has always existed. It says this in Revelation 1.8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I'm the Alpha, I'm the beginning. I'm the Omega, I'm the end. I, I am now, I was. When God revealed himself to Moses, God said, tell me your name. He said, I am. God has eternally existed. That means there's never been a time when God hasn't existed. And I'll just tell you, for me, when I start to doubt or struggle or go, gosh, there's something about the Christian faith that's just hard for me to grasp, that's it. I'm like, Come on. Well, who made God? It's like, no one. He's just always been. Well, come on, who made him, right? I mean, don't you have that feeling? Like, as, as people who live in a created world where everything we know has been created, it's very hard for us to fathom the idea of, of, of someone not being created. And, and then finally, I remember this was a number of years ago. I was in New Zealand, of all places. And I remember laying awake with all this jet lag and I got into this funk of thinking this, and I just began to really, it was like all of what I believed was sort of unraveling, and I just sort of went, well, hold on a second. Let's just imagine that someone created God. Well, who created that person? Well, then, I mean, if, if you follow this logic, uh, eventually somebody just had to always be. And that is what the Bible says, is that God has always been. He's eternally existed as three persons. And that's key. He's existed as three distinct persons. God is not the Spirit. God the Father is not the Spirit. God the Son is not the Father. The Spirit is not the Father. God has eternally existed. One God, three persons. Here's what it says in Matthew chapter 3. This is when Jesus is baptized. And we get a picture here of all the members of the Trinity at work here, each person. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. So we got Jesus here, right? He's in the water, up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven, that's the Father, said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus here is not the Spirit. Jesus here is not the Father. The Father here is not the Spirit. This is one God, three distinct persons. Each person is fully God. So God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God. 
Uh, the clearest one here is that the Father is God. That doesn't seem to be a very difficult thing to think about. When we think of God, we typically think of the idea of Father. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he said, pray, our Father, right? So Father is clearly God. But, but the debate then begins to swirl specifically around Jesus, but also the Holy Spirit. So what we see is that the Son is also God. Here's what it says in Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Okay, that's, that's a key idea. Through the Son, he created the world. Okay? Who has the power to create the world? God. So to say that God's Son created the world is to say that God's Son is God. To say that the Father's Son is God. And if you didn't get that exactly, he goes on to say this in verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus Christ... As God the Son in eternity past created everything. Now listen, this is really important. God the Son did not become God the Son on Christmas. Okay? A lot of people tend to think about that. Like, like, like Jesus began to exist at the incarnation, at Christmas time. No, God the Son had existed eternally. He created all things. He upholds all things by the word of his power. And then he takes on a human body. He takes on flesh. Incarnation. Uh, you know, you've had chili con carne. Incarnation. God with meat. That's what it means. So God the Son, eternally existing, takes on a, a body. But it's not like he began to exist then. He had always existed as God. It really, I mean, the, the debate swirls around Jesus, and, and it's not much of a debate if you look at the Bible. I mean, Hebrews 1 is a place. Colossians 1 is another place. Um, it was, this was very clear even in Jesus' ministry. He said to the people, he said, before Abraham was, I am, quoting that name of God. And you know what they did? They picked up stones to stone him because they knew he was claiming to be God. Each person is fully God. What about the Holy Spirit? When Acts 5, we're introduced to an interesting uh, story uh, that this dis displays clearly that, that the Scripture declares that the Holy Spirit is God. Ananias is a guy. He and his wife, Sapphira, they had sold some land. They had gone to the apostles and, and given all the proceeds of their sale and said, hey, this, is, this was the full amount that we had gotten. And as we'll see in the text, it didn't matter. They could have withheld some of it. That was fine. But they withheld it, but they lied about it. And so here's what Peter says. It says, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So you get that, the beginning? Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You haven't lied to men, but to God. The Holy Spirit is God. Each person fully 
God. Now, one of the things I want to do throughout today is draw a few pictures for you. Some of you are more visual. Perhaps this will help. There's a lot of ways that people have tried to to graphically illustrate the idea of the Trinity. Most of them are wrong. Uh, Just like most analogies of the Trinity uh, break down at some point significant. So here's, here's one that is incorrect, but a common way to think about it is that you have Father, Son, Holy Spirit, like this. It's like a pie, right? The problem with this is what this communicates is that God the Father is only partly God. He's not fully God. But, but the scripture teaches that each person of the Trinity is fully God. And so that's, that's not a helpful way to look at it. We'll look at a, a couple more here in just a moment. But before we do, here's one more thing we have to say. Is the third part of our definition is this. There is one God. Deuteronomy 6 uh, says it like this. This was something the Jews would have recited over and over. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. God is one. There is one God. There's not three gods. There's one God eternally existing in three persons. Clear? No? Yeah, me neither, right? I, I, can't, I can't fully explain or understand that. Um, the Bible, though, uh, declares it to be so, and so we embrace it. Well, there's a couple errors that have come throughout history about this, and this is the last thing I got that's sort of technical, and then we'll get into the practical stuff, okay? Here's the last thing, um, is that there are three big errors that have come, and each of them come from denying some aspect of that definition of the Trinity. So the first definition, or the first thing that people have done, is, uh, is what's been known as modalism. The idea is basically this. It's the idea that God has existed eternally, but he sort of shows up, in three different forms. One God in three different modes, if you will. So the idea is that, like, you know, God puts on his father hat. You know, it says a bunch of stuff to the Old Testament prophets and then takes that hat off and puts on the son hat and becomes Jesus and then takes that off and becomes the spirit. Um, and, and the Bible doesn't teach that. A way graphically to sort of imagine that would be you've got Father, Son, Holy Spirit... And it just depends on how you look at it, right? So this is not necessarily a a super common perspective. Oneness Pentecostals will subscribe to this. But I think functionally a lot of Christians maybe fall into that as an error. That's that's modalism, okay? The second error is what's called Arianism. It's named that because it's named after the guy who was really uh, the proponent of the view, Arius. Um, The Nicene Council in 325 A.D., was convened fundamentally to debate Arianism. And Arius essentially thought, okay, there's one God, but if there's one God, then there can't be a way that Jesus is God. He couldn't understand the the one God, three persons. And so essentially his view was this. There's God, the Father, who creates God the Son. That's basically his view. Now, that's the view of Jehovah's Witnesses today. So if you look in their information, if you read their literature, if you speak with them, they'll confirm to you that they don't believe that Jesus, uh, God the Son, has been God the Son forever, but that he was the first, uh, the firstborn of all creation, as it says in Colossians 1. Well, that passage has to do with priority and rank and importance. It doesn't mean that God the Father created God the Son. 
That's not what it means at all. And yet that's, that's that error, Arianism. Seeing Jesus is just a little bit less than God. And as we've said, the scripture clearly makes that uh, case that, it, that that's, not, that's not in fact the case. Here's the third one. And this, uh, this is, I think, maybe the error that most of us are prone to fall into. And it's called tritheism. So the other two are really sort of elevate, over-elevating the idea that God is one. This one is kind of elevating the idea that God is three. Um, and so tritheism, this is pretty simple to graphically understand. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's the idea that as though we worship three gods. And the scripture says we don't worship three gods. We worship one God. This is the heir of the LDS church. Many of you have friends and even background. Maybe you're here today and you have a background or you're part of the LDS movement. What you would know is that the LDS church would see uh, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit not being as one God but being three distinct gods. Additionally, the LDS church would say um, that these uh, gods did not eternally exist but that God the Father was a man who became a God. And so these have real practical implications theologically for understanding um, how, how we understand God and who he is and what, what the Bible says. So there's a bunch of sort of unhelpful and, and wrong perspectives. What would be maybe a diagram that is more along the path of what the Bible teaches? Well, this is provided by Dr. Wayne Grudem, his systematic theology book. Here's, what he, here's how he does it. He says, okay, Father, Son, Holy Spirit... You're going to have to forgive my lousy. <laughs> in, in a good picture, what this would be is three equal parts, but, but with dotted lines. The idea that each person is fully God, and yet there's distinctiveness about the Father, and distinctiveness about the Son, and distinctiveness about the Holy Spirit. And they're in relationship. There's sort of a, a flow to this. They're relating to each other. They're, in a sense, orbiting around one another, or what many theologians have called the dance of God, the idea that, that they're, they're interconnected forever in relationship with one another. That's the idea of the Trinity. Who cares? Right? I mean, like, okay, I don't want to be in a cult. I want to get the who is God question right on my test when I stand before him. But, like, what difference does this make? That's what I want to turn into now. What does this matter practically? This matters practically because there's a Trinitarian God who has existed forever. He has made the world we live in, and he has made you and I in his image. We'll talk about the image of God in weeks to come, but this is so key for this truth today, is that if you are going to understand the world that we're in, And the people around you, you have to understand who is God. If you don't get who God is and that God is one God in three persons, you aren't going to be able to understand how relationships and the world are supposed to work. You won't get it. Now listen, you don't have to fully get it, but there's already things in your life right now that I know you've sensed and you've felt and you've hoped for and you've longed for that already tell me that you know instinctively that the world is made by a Trinitarian God. Right? You don't have to know everything to, to, to know that something is true. It's like my four-year-old daughter, Abby, who thinks she does know everything. 
And I, apparently that only gets worse. Is that what I'm told? Great. Awesome. That'll be fun. But there's stuff that she knows that she doesn't fully know. So, for instance, she knows and understands gravity. Right? Like, like if, if she were to take a ball, and I said, let go of the ball, and what do you think will happen? She would know that it would drop. She knows that if she stands at the edge of the pool and leans forward, she's going to fall in. And yet if I said to her, hey, Abby, would you please explain to me gravity? Uh, what's gravity? Yet she knows that because that's the world she's in. She knows about echoes. Like we've had times where we've gone into a, you know, like a store or something, and she'll say, Daddy, there's an echo in here. And she doesn't go, you know, an echo is formed when a sound wave bounces off a wall and comes back into, into your eardrum. And, I mean, she doesn't do that. She doesn't understand that. She doesn't know why there's an echo, but she knows there is. And what I'm trying to say is that each of us, as we'll see here in just a moment, we have longings and hopes and expectations of what relationships should be and how the world would work. And all of that is formed by the reality that we're made in God's image. This is God's world. So here's, here's one longing that we have that I think informs this idea. We long to be truly loved. And we long to truly love. We often say here, the opposite of love is not hate, it's selfishness. Selfishness is the opposite of love. And the way that the world works is basically like this. The way that we work instinctively when we're being selfish is this. It's me at the center of the world and everything revolves around me. And that's not love. That's not giving yourself away. That's not caring about somebody else. And what the doctrine of the Trinity tells us is that God is not unipersonal. This is not the thing. That there's one God the Father and everything just orbits around him. Listen, if God was unipersonal, he could be strong. He could be creative. He could be powerful. He could be sovereign. But how could he be loving? Because loving is inherently giving yourself to someone else. The Bible teaches that God has been tripersonal. God is a trinity who for eternity, even way before we entered the picture, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they were loving each other, the dance of God, caring for one another, communing with one another, enjoying one another. God was never lonely. God was never bored. But Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this perfect, unjunked community. Giving one another way. It's why the Bible can say, God is love. And God didn't become love when he created people. God was love from eternity past when Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were loving on each other. So the desire that you have and that I have, that we have for love, that comes from God. I was watching this show just briefly before bed last night. Uh, it was Dateline, I think, and it was about this, um, it, was just, it was heartbreaking. It was about this place called the, um, the Breakthrough Mansion. 
And it was a bunch of people that had gone there, and they were there for various reasons, um, but almost all of them had had some sort of life-defining crisis or pain or hurt in their life. Um, A lot of it was abuse. A lot of it was neglect. And they featured this one particular guy on this show, and and it was sort of waiting for him to have this breakthrough. And um, he, he just, his life had been really, really tough. His mom had this one boyfriend that when they, when they mentioned his name, he broke down crying because he was so abusive and always telling him, you're stupid and you're never going to amount to anything. And, and this guy was just so broken. You can just see it. They asked him to write letters to their parents. And his le- most people wrote these really long, scathing letters. And he's just wrote, he just wrote, all I ever wanted was love and all I ever got was hate. And this show is just watching this guy. Is he going to have a breakthrough? Is he going to, is he going to, like, is all this going to work? And what would happen is they'd be with, like, these eight people, these total strangers, just for, like, two days, and do this real intensive, interactive stuff together. And, and finally, the guy has this breakthrough. And, and stuff begins to sort of, the bitterness and the rage and the things begin to melt away from it. And I, I just, as I was going to bed, was pondering, why is that? What, I mean, why is it that this guy who's got this whole lifetime of bitterness and anger and rage built up, why is it that so much of it can get dealt with with total strangers just in a couple days? You know what I think? The Breakthrough Mansion, he finally, for the first time in his life, was loved. Someone listened to his story. Someone cared. Someone gave him a touch that wasn't painful, but that was comforting. You know why he craved that and why he wants that? And, and, and why those of you who, who have experienced that kind of love, your life is so much less painful than those of you who have experienced the other side of it, and all you've received is is hurt from people. Do you know why that is? It's because we're made in the image of a Trinitarian loving God. That desire that we have just comes straight out of who God is. So does this matter practically? Yeah. If we want to be able to love one another, if you want to be able to love your husband or your wife or your children or your friends or your co-workers, how are you going to learn to love like that? You've got to look to God himself who is love. You're also made to be joyful. You have a desire to be joyful, don't you? Just to enjoy life. Isn't it one of the best moments in life when you're just like laughing? And then you're laughing because you're laughing. And then you're like, why are we laughing? I don't know, but it's so funny. Right? You just, and you can't even remember. And then you try to tell someone else about it. And you're like, no, nah, you had to be there. Right? And those moments, one of the things I love about that is it's, it's so self-forgetful. You're just enjoying the people you're with and you're enjoying the moment. You know that God, the three-in-one, has been filled with joy forever? God didn't create the world because he's going, gosh, i got to have something to do or I need somebody to love or I need somebody to like me. No, no, he created just out of the overflow, the joy, the contagious laughter of who he is. And so our longing for joy and our longing for happiness and our longing to just enjoy 
who we are and the people around us, that just comes from God. You want to have joy? You've got to look to the God who is eternally joyful. Here's how uh, Driscoll and Brashears talk about these longings. They describe them in the first couple pages of this book. Uh, we'll put this quote up on the screen for you. It's a little bit longer, but it's a very good one. Here's what they say. They say, deep longings pervade the human heart. We long for selfless, trustworthy, unending love from someone we can trust to be faithful and helpful. We long for unity within the great diversity of humanity, some means by which we can live in peace and oneness that benefits each of us. We long for communication from face-to-face conversations to the proliferation of modern technology created for the purpose of letting us know others and be known by them have a seemingly insatiable passion to speak and be spoken to. We long for community, significant and earnest relationships with others so that we are part of a people devoted to something larger and greater than our individual lives. We long for humility where people pour themselves out unreservedly for the benefit and well-being of others. We long for peace, harmony, and safe altruism for others and ourselves so that abuse, cruelty, misery, and the painful tears they cause could stop. We long for a selfless common good, a world in which everyone does what is best for all and is not so viciously and exclusively devoted to self-interest and tribal concerns. Why? Why do we have these persistent, deep longings that occasionally compel us to action and often leave us frustrated or disappointed? From where do they emanate and how can they be satisfied? Our longings for love, Unity and diversity, communication, community, humility, peace, and selflessness are in fact by design longings for the Trinitarian God of the Bible and a world that is a reflection of the Trinity. Why does this matter? Because all these longings in your heart point you to the reality that you need a relationship with the only God who has always had everything you long for. That's why this matters. It's about relationship. In this relationship with God, through the gospel, God opens himself to you. So it matters because if if you want to understand the world, you got to get this. But listen, if you want to have these longings actually fulfilled you got to get this, because here's what you need. You need the gospel to have these longings fulfilled, because the gospel enters you into relationship with this Trinitarian God. And get this, this is so cool. The shape of the gospel is the shape of the Trinity. I don't know if that will make sense. We're going to try to unpack that from God's word, but listen. The, The gospel takes on the shape and the personality and invites you into relationship with the triune God. Here's how Fred Sanders says it. He says the good news of the gospel is that God opens his Trinitarian life to us. Christian salvation comes from the Trinity, happens through the Trinity, and brings us home to the Trinity. So finally, (laughs) after quite a while, we get to Ephesians 1. All right, so if you have your Bible still, go ahead and grab it. We'll try to put some of it up here on the screen. But Ephesians 1, this is a classic passage where the Apostle Paul is celebrating the gospel of God, the good news of God. 
See, listen, God knows that you have this desire. He made you that way. He also knows that that desire oftentimes is unfulfilled because of sin. Because we don't operate this way. We don't fully live out the image of God in us. It's been marred by sin. It's been marred by selfishness. It's been marred by the the sin and the pride that makes us have to be the center of the universe. And so God provides the gospel, the good news, to restore us to the image of God that he's created us to be. And so Ephesians 1 is celebrating that. Uh, this, this passage, verses 3 through 14, get this, it's one long sentence in the Greek. One commentator has said it's like a 202-word avalanche of praise without punctuation. That's words in the Greek, in case you just try to count them and go, hey, that's not 202 words. It's, it's Paul just going, this is amazing, this gospel that has restored us to this Trinitarian God. And listen, when Paul has this explosion, this avalanche of, of praise to God for the gospel, notice the Trinitarian shape that it takes. It starts verse 3. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So first he starts off praising the Father and the Father's role in the gospel. And what has the Father done? He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. So what has God done? He's blessed us. He's chosen us. He's predestined us. He's adopted us. That's the role of God, the Father, in the gospel. And he moves to the Son, the beloved, as he's referred to in verse 6. And he says, in Jesus, in him, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. Redemption's a word all throughout the Bible. What it has with it is the idea of that we're in bondage. It's like the people of Israel being in bondage in Egypt. And they're redeemed through the exodus. We're in bondage to ourself. We're in bondage to I'm the center of the universe. And look at me. And aren't I important? We're in bondage to that. We need redemption. And in Jesus we get redemption. We get freedom from that. Through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. God forgives you. You know, God will forgive you today. He makes known to us the mystery of his will, verse 9. It says in verse 11, In him we've obtained an inheritance. So God the Father blesses and chooses and predestines and adopts. And God the Son redeems with his blood by going to the cross for us, by becoming God with meat and letting that flesh be shredded on the cross. There's forgiveness of sins. There's a promise of an inheritance. But then it concludes in verse 13, in him, in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who's the guarantee of our inheritance. So this is amazing. The Father blesses you with the inheritance chooses you and predestines you for it, adopts you to have it. Jesus himself buys it for you and the Spirit guarantees it and seals you and says, this one's mine. That's the avalanche of praise of the gospel. Do you see that it's just the shape of the Trinity? So listen, when you believe 
in the gospel of God. It's giving you access into relationship with this triune God. That's why you feel the love of God as your father when you're adopted as his child. I love, there's so many people interested in pursuing and um, some even just recently have been able to adopt in our church. And it's so cool because it just flows out of the gospel. We've been adopted by God and so of course we can adopt. So cool. And when you experience the gratitude of your sins being forgiven, you're in relationship there with Jesus. And when the times are dark and the hope is grim and you're wondering, am I, am I really going to be able to endure? There's the ceiling, the guarantee, the, the, the spirit crying out with your spirit, Abba, Father. If you want to talk about having a relationship with God, this is who he is. And if you want his kind of relationship to begin to inform your relationships where you can truly be loving instead of being selfish in the center of the universe, where you can truly be interdependent on other people and trust other people and celebrate other people, not looking out only for your own interests but also to the interest of others. If you, if you want to do that, you've got to be in communion with the God who is that. Here's the reality. So many of us, our relationships are broken. Our marriages are hanging on by a thread. Our patience and frustration with children is rising. And here's what we think. I gotta go get a book on that. I gotta go watch a, I gotta go to a seminar. I gotta go maybe watch a, a show that will deal with that. Here's what you need. You need God. Not saying that books and seminars and other things aren't helpful. They're helpful to the degree that they point you to God. Because He has always been what you are hoping to someday enjoy. Go to Him. He's our God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you have invited us into your family. And Jesus, thank you that you went to the cross on our behalf, you gave of your own flesh and your own blood so that we could be brought in. And Spirit, thank you that you've opened the eyes of our hearts to see the wonder of the cross, this, this cross that is foolish to so many, and yet to us, because of your Spirit, it's the power of God. And you've washed and regenerated and made us new. And you've sealed us. You've gifted us. You've allowed us to walk with you every day. Help us to do that. Just to know that we're loved in Christ. That just as Christ received the affirmation of his Father without even having done his ministry yet, just that we would know, Father, that you are loving us now even without our, all our good works and all our good effort. Allow us to sense and experience that love. And then to love others that way, selflessly, freely, joyfully. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.